Welcome to the Ruled by Magpies podcast. I'm your host Chloe and buckle up because we're about to take a wild ride through the roller coaster of my life. Empowerment is our anthem, resilience is our superpower and fabulousness is our birthright. Let's go. Hello, hello. How are we all? Right, first things first, I'm not a vegetarian anymore. I could not hack it. We did 12 solid days of hunger and flatulence before I said enough is enough. We were out on a night after work getting our 10,000 steps in because January, you know, and my stomach was hurting and we came to the compromise that we would go back to chicken and fish. So no red meat, but chicken and fish only. The thing is, right, I exercise a lot. I go to classes which are strength-based around four times a week. I work out at home in between, walk the dog to get that amount of protein that I need in my diet to feel fit and strong. The amount of fibre and carbs I was having to consume to get the plant-based protein were just overwhelming. Honestly, your girl's working out 10 times a week and putting on pure pounds. I felt like one of them big old muscle fellas in gym in bulking phase. I mean, I'd happily enter a bulk phase. Um, I just encountered some serious issues when it came to the cutting phase because food is life and I don't have enough discipline to sacrifice taste. I've also got a funny relationship with eggs and I think these fellas eat a lot of eggs. Egg whites and all, like I've seen them in supermarket where there's loads of egg whites in a carton and you can just buy pure egg whites. Oh, that's wild. I like egg yolks, me, nice and runny. Or like jammy, if you know what I mean. Not fully cooked, but not runny, kind of like spreadable. But that white bit... Yeah, that's the bit with the protein and without the cholesterol. The yolk's got all the cholesterol in and no protein. Get in the bin, not for me. Anyway, apart from my diet, (laughs) which I won't keep harping on about every week, I promise, it's been a busy old week. So my CIC Lyft are sponsoring an event this weekend. So I've been on merch making duties. Oh my God, I am so excited. I cannot wait to share this merch with the world. It's fierce and feminist, obviously. Absolute hyper focus mode was entered. Saturday night, I'm there till like 1am pressing dominant women uh, quotes onto tote bags. I'm making little tags with care instructions and raving about our ethical production. Meanwhile, I've got this heat press on 300 degree Fahrenheit. It's like a sweatshop in my spare bedroom. My fella's got his top off. There's beads of sweat running down his head. I feel like a dominant woman right now and all watching him handle canvas and Teflon on his knees sweating I'm saying fucking hell that's not straight you donut line it up ethical production my ass," he said oh dear me but don't tell anyone I swear they were ethically produced in my spare bedroom which is not really a sweatshop so he bought the heat press off Gumtree it's like a big heavy machine with plates on either side that heat up like an iron and then you clamp it down and heat transfers vinyl onto the material it's simple really so I went round to my grandparents I bet you're all glad that I described what a heat press is (laughs) as if you're all thick um sorry about that so 
I went round to my grandparents on Sunday and I was showing my nana pictures of the merch on my phone. She's like the crafting queen, so I couldn't wait to tell her all about this heat press. So I'm telling her, we've had it running upstairs in my home office. My home office is like, it's obviously a, a bedroom in the house, but converted into, into my little sanctuary, my little home office where I got all my stuff done. She's mega impressed, like I knew she would be. Ten minutes later, we're all eating dinner and having a natter, and my granddad pipes up, been no good for your diet having a press in the bedroom. <laughs> Bit of an odd comment, but bless his soul, he is known for his peculiar comments sometimes. So I let it slide and I didn't say anything. Another ten minutes goes by and he says, come on then, what press did uh, he buy for office? Were it one of those big ones that you can do wraps and such in? He thought that we'd bought a sandwich press, a bloody toasty machine for upstairs. He says, oh, I thought you'd got one of them flat like toasty makers because you can do all them wraps and such that you like in them. Because wraps are like exotic fruit or something to my granddad. He only eats Warburton's small loaf <laughs> white bread. Honestly, what kind of lazy bastard does he think I am to have a toasty maker in me office? In me two up, two down house. Like I'm too lazy to walk to the kitchen and we're making toasties in the spare bedroom now. There'll be people coming round. It'll be like that episode of a royal family um, where they're saying, oh, have you met Cheryl yet? Well, no, but I've met her fridge freezer. It's beautiful. She'd make a great lesbian. Bloody hell, he'll be saying, have you met our Chloe? Well, no, but I've met her eat press. Wouldn't she make a lovely lesbian? <laughs> oh, we digress. So this upcoming event, the thing that I am most proud of with this upcoming event that we're sponsoring is that we have truly managed to deliver on our commitment to help facilitate economic opportunities for women. This sponsorship came with a double stall spot during the event, but since we're a service-based business, selling products is not really what we do. So one of our stall spots was gifted to a sex worker-owned business, enabling them to generate income that day without a part of the initial layout for a stall. It's small, but it's impactful. Um, we've been running for around a year now, and I'm just really proud that we're able to make these kinds of things happen. Staying on the theme of economic empowerment, I want to talk today about the announcement from Women's Aid and the Home Office about the £2 million flexible fund to help victim survivors of domestic abuse. The funds will enable access to grants of up to £2,500 and these will be one-off payments to victim survivors. The scheme was piloted last year with an initial um, part of grant funding of £300,000 and this um, was to give payments of either £250 or £500 to people. I guess like many with a lived experience of domestic abuse, it was received with such complex and mixed feelings. Obviously, it's a huge positive, but for people with lived experience of domestic abuse and specifically with economic abuse, we know the true complexities of living in financial hardship. 
And I guess that generates a lot of questions about the inclusivity and accessibility of the scheme across a diverse pool of people. For activists too, obviously it is such a welcome announcement that will absolutely support vulnerable women. However, there is a feeling that the headline initiative does not reflect the true status and scope of investment into domestic violence, supporting victim survivors and funding existing services and frameworks in place. Whilst headlines like the announcement of the fund create general and widespread optimism, a facade that lots is being done because money talks to people, the reality can be quite different Inadequate support structures and the execution of existing legislation completely undermines the intended impact of schemes like this one on victims. We've seen only days before this announcement of this scheme reporting of such failures in the police, failure to release information about violent partners to people making applications under Claire's law. Um, if you follow me, then you probably have heard me speak about Claire's Law before. So reading all this stuff was hugely um, disappointing. And you might know that coming out of my own experience of um, domestic abuse and specifically dealing with the criminal justice system, one of the positives that I, the, the only positive I could take away from my dealings with the criminal justice system was that um, if, if somebody ever needed to make a disclosure under Claire's law relating to my perpetrator, then perhaps my story would help save somebody from going through what I've been through. So it's been quite, quite, um, emotional and challenging for me this week to read some of this stuff which is going on around Claire's Law. So Claire's Law is the domestic violence disclosure scheme. It's named after Claire Ward who was murdered by a violent partner in 2009. Disclosures under this scheme are fallen and in England and Wales the rate of disclosure by police forces has fell by 9.4% between March 2019 and March 2023. Whilst Claire's Law gives a right to ask and a right to know, it seems that the right to protection of perpetrators outweighs the risk to potential victims of domestic abuse in many cases, and the inconsistencies across police forces reported recently and the total lack of prioritisation of a continually prevalent crime against majority women and girls is absolutely damning. Wiltshire Police are undergoing investigation from the Independent Office for Police Conduct after admitting serious failures after two women were harmed after Wiltshire Police's failure to make disclosures under the scheme. Service failures and administrative failures are constantly given as excuses to victims of domestic violence. And it's boring. I'm sick of it. But it begs the question as to why more significant funding isn't being injected into dealing with these so-called failings as opposed to the reactive piece of work. Headline initiatives need to be backed up by comprehensive, well-funded support systems. 
This includes, outside of the execution of existing legislation like Claire's Law, accessible anti-victim blaming, trauma-informed mental health services, affordable housing, legal aid and education programmes, for example, comprehensive action to reduce violence against women and girls, also means perpetrator-focused campaigning and work and actually holding perpetrators to account. I'm talking preventative stuff, not reactive. And we know that none of these comprehensive and well-funded systems currently exist or function adequately enough, be it due to funding or simply the lack of prioritisation of women and girls' issues. Policymakers must be held accountable for the allocation of funding which ensures initiatives translate into meaningful change. I've read the Emergency Fund Evaluation Report from Women's Aid, exploring the research and findings of the pilot fund of £300,000 last year. And whilst I totally do appreciate the findings which conclude on the assumption that a fund like this will have significant impact on victim survivors being able to stay fled from their perpetrator, I'm unconvinced about the longer term and sustained impact that the fund will have on individuals. This doesn't mean that I don't value the scheme or think it should not be in place. It is fantastic. And I want to highlight some of the fantastic elements of this scheme, whilst also being realistic about the nuances of being a victim survivor of domestic abuse, and specifically economic abuse. Throughout this podcast, I will continue to refer to victim survivors as women. In this context, over 97% of the people who accessed the pilot, pilot fund were women, almost 98% if you include transgender women. This doesn't diminish the fact that men can also be impacted. However, women are disproportionately impacted and my work as an activist focuses on women. Like last week when I spoke about gaslighting at work and discrimination, I said I would speak only from the angle of my own lived experience as a woman. So one thing that I really like about this scheme and I hope continues as it's rolled out as the flexible fund is the agency the fund delivered as highlighted in the report. The fact that the fund was flexible and victim survivors were trusted to spend money on what they needed, be it clothes, a washing machine, nappies, rent, it wasn't prescribed the clothes would be bought for them, for example, or they weren't given, you know, a voucher for a specific shop. In situations of gender-based violence, women can often feel oppressed and lacking autonomy and being able to have control over decisions and actions for themselves in the aftermath of domestic abuse is really important for overall well-being. Being able to decide about how you spend a grant like this, which is given to support you in the most vulnerable of circumstances, reinforces the confidence that you do have the capability to manage your own welfare. Giving women the opportunity to make choices that align with their specific needs and preferences undoubtedly enhances their agency in making decisions in other areas of their life like their health their safety and their overall welfare 
promoting independence from their abuser and from services too. By fostering agency, the scheme supports survivors in breaking free from a cycle of abuse. Promoting autonomy reduces the likelihood of returning to abusive situations and this is done simply through the boost in self-belief and self-belief should never be underestimated. It is very powerful. This was exactly the ethos that I built the Women's Health Menu on. The Women's Help Menu is a self-signposting service for women. It's available on the Lyft website. I created it because self-signposting for women is about recognising and respecting their ability to make choices about their own lives. It acknowledges their agency, promotes privacy, reduces barriers and contributes to an overall sense of empowerment and well-being. For women that have felt dependent, trapped and controlled by an abusive partner, agency is such a huge step in getting your life back. My concern with the scheme, outside of the grabby headline misrepresenting the true situation when it comes to policy and action on domestic abuse, is the nuance of classifying financial hardship and the many forgotten women that I know are likely to be excluded from this scheme and the harmful narratives that it will perpetuate. What do I mean by harmful narratives? There is a prevailing stereotype that associates domestic abuse with poverty and lower socioeconomic status. This oversimplification ignores the fact that abuse can occur in any socioeconomic group and individuals from all walks of life can be victims. The belief that only poor women can be victims of domestic abuse is a harmful stereotype and a misconception. People ask, why do you keep talking about what happens here? And I've been approached in as blunt a way as people telling me to just move on. I have moved on. I am healing and moving on every single day, in fact. But there is a limited awareness and education about the diverse experiences of domestic abuse. And this contributes to misconceptions. Educating people about the varied forms and contexts of abuse through lived experience voices is absolutely essential to dispel these myths and ultimately bring about change. So-called battered wives aren't from council estates, they aren't all in benefits and it isn't solely a socioeconomic issue at all. Perpetrators of domestic abuse don't discriminate by age or socioeconomic status. If you want to learn more about domestic abuse in the older generation specifically, I would highly recommend that you check out the work by Carrie Bauer. She works for Age UK and if you Google Carrie Bauer Invisible Women, you'll be able to check out her Invisible Women series, which is simply incredible. So if you're in financial hardship, it means that you're not able to meet your basic needs. You can't afford the basics like shelter, clothing and food. Typically, this is associated with unemployment or even a lack of stable employment. A lack of um, stable employment or no employment leads to a lack of financial stability. But this isn't the only way that financial hardship occurs in the context of domestic abuse. If you are being economically abused and a perpetrator is controlling your finances, 
meaning that you have an accumulation of debt or no access to your own salary, even if you are working, this is putting you in personal financial hardship. So riddle me this, whilst a woman who is not employed can access a refuge in the UK and housing benefits will cover most or all the payments she needs to make to stay there, a woman who is working will need to pay for it herself because she will have no access to public funds to play to pay for a place to stay in a refuge and typically will pay more. Payments for working women to stay in a refuge are reported to be around £350 a week. £350 a week. In a four-week month, that's £1,400. The average salary in the UK for women in 2023 was £29,842 a year. That's £573 a week. That leaves you with £223 a week after you've paid your £350 rent. You need to spend that £223 a week to meet all your other needs, like making supplementary payments in the refuge towards utilities like water and gas, paying for your food, travelling to and from work, paying off debts, which you're very likely to have, saving to leave the refuge and you probably have payments to keep up with to keep your life out of further debt and turmoil back with the abuser such as shared tenancies, mortgages or bills. So how many of you did that shock? Because I bet you all thought going to a domestic abuse refuge was free, right? No, you've still got to pay your rent and your way. And whilst you don't need money up front to go into a refuge, you do need to be able to pay the rent and you will accumulate debt whilst there, if you can. Dr Nicola Sharp Jeffs, Chief Executive Officer of the charity Surviving Economic Abuse, said that refuges presently operate in a way that disadvantages women in full-time employment who are not in receipt of housing-related benefits, and I could not agree more. New research from surviving economic abuse has found forcing a partner into debt is a common tactic of domestic abuse, and 60% of victims are forced into debt. What people need to realise is that perpetrating domestic abuse is a choice, and perpetrators will pursue women that they believe will be beneficial to them, and this includes women who work, women who do have financial independence before the relationship and they clearly can be manipulated and abused for financial gain of the perpetrator. So if you're working full time but your wages are getting paid into a perpetrator's account or they have access to your online banking or they've got your bank card or they've forced you into accumulated and spiralling debt through economic abuse, how can you afford to access a refuge placement at around £350 a week. Perhaps you're encouraged to give up your job to do this, and some women do, but having been in this situation exactly, I know that battle of not wanting to give up your job, the choice between safety and independence, the fear of starting over, and weighing up all the contributing elements like the humongous debt repayments that require your salary, the pressure on you, 
The fear of what will happen if you don't do something about the situation soon. The fear that this situation might end your life because if he doesn't, you just might. And that might be caused by staying with him or perhaps through the destitution in what appears leaving him will cause. Why should you have to give up your job? A one area of your life where you may feel a sense of self-worth, direction and independence. A place where things are normal. You need normal. A passion that might just save your fucking life through the trauma of healing. Why should you have to quit that to access a refuge space affordably? I care so much about helping those most vulnerable. I really do. And by having this conversation... I'm not trying to take away from the most vulnerable and the people in the lowest socioeconomic circumstances, but I'm trying to challenge the definition of what vulnerability and financial hardship is in these circumstances. Because like many facing disadvantage, it feels like if you don't fit certain stereotypes, then help is inaccessible. I've been told I'm far too strong-willed, confident, independent to have been abused well you know what I might be but the two can coexist I was a victim of domestic abuse and I am still all of those things I am smart and sensible and have a really good income but I still had my life destroyed by coerced debt and have spent years picking up the pieces whilst my perpetrator moved on to a new victim and gave her the love bombing phase with my fucking hard-earned cash. Coerced debt happens when perpetrators put sole responsibility on the victim for things like utility bills, rent, mortgages. They may take out credit cards or loans in your name. They might coerce you to take them out, but they always end up being the beneficiary of them. They always get the credit card or the loan money always goes to them and perhaps even sometimes goes directly into their bloody bank account. They might may force you into being a guarantor for them, for example, or they might have a family member be a guarantor for them, a family member of yours. So leaving their failures always down to you to resolve they get to have a lovely lifestyle of nice shiny things and you must deal with the creditors and bailiffs and the panic and the stress and the anxiety and the worry and this carries on and on and on for years afterwards you pick up the pieces and they move on with their lives with absolutely no consequences and I know all about this right because it happened to me I'm open when I talk about it, and some of you might know, but I left domestic abuse with six CCJs and probably around 20k worth of debt. I used to say, oh, I'm so lucky I've been able to sort all this out, but fuck that, I'm not lucky. I worked my ass off night and day to get out of that situation, and I shouldn't have been in it in the first place. Deal with bailiffs? Have I? After leaving domestic abuse, I were getting my life seriously back on track, I had a bailiff once try to repossess a car I'd purchased post-relationship breakdown, which was registered in my business's name while I were in the other room in my house sitting a proxied exam for my postgraduate level qualification because they were looking for my perpetrator and thought that he lived there. 
did I pass the exam though? Yeah, I fucking did. And that's what living with trauma and in survival mode is like. The superpower. Oh, don't get me started on it. Watch anyone tell me now that I can't do something. Hang on, you don't know what I've done and under what pressure, hun. I'm not sure I'll be using this example of working under pressure in an interview anytime soon, because, you know, stigma. But, hell, I wish I could. So, according to the Economic Justice Project, which was a three-year study conducted by Surviving Economic Abuse, the charity that I spoke about a few minutes ago... The average level of debt for a survivor of domestic abuse is £4,600. Tell me, what is £500 or even a £2,500 grant going to achieve in those circumstances? Wonderful help! And then the cycle continues. Many women in the report from Women's Aid cite the relief of being able to make this month's rent or pay off a debtor but what happens next month when the rent is due again? Or the next debtor in line comes knocking, saying he'll be back tomorrow at 9pm to remove your goods. I wonder if this scheme will create a level of dependency and what the true and sustained impact will be. One-off payments are a sticky plaster over a huge fucking crack in a wider system. Some women reference using the £500 grant to put a deposit down on a place to live. I don't know where this woman went to live, but Jesus, have you ever tried getting a rental in the current housing crisis and with bad credit, default CCJs? I have. And I know other women that have. Good luck. I had to put down six months rent twice because the first place ripped me off and I was literally reduced throughout the process to begging and laying myself bare, explaining why some rich-ass southerner who's bought hundreds of cheap northern houses to profit from should take a risk on me. Disgusting, debt-riddled me. Because that's how you feel. You don't feel like a human. I didn't feel like a, you know, postgraduate qualified young professional woman who's in full-time employment and runs two businesses you're just made to feel like not a human being there's no compassion or empathy over five thousand pounds i had to find up front twice and this isn't uncommon in the current housing market so when we're offering women £500, £2,500, what? It's not going to make a dent. These things need to be solved up front. Financial hardship isn't a natural state of being, it's a created circumstance. It's multifaceted, and we need to help all women, working or not working, evolve out of financial hardship and deal with it for the long term. We need to see some sort of scheme or legislation that holds perpetrators accountable for coerced debt. Something that holds creditors accountable to an extent for coerced debt. I appreciate that this is not an overnight fix and perhaps the scheme is the start of more to come, but it's not the complete answer. We should never take any help like this away from victims. And, you know, I'm really glad that this scheme is coming. But I am so eager for the future to see this scheme developed into more. 
to see a government that delivers on more for victim survivors of domestic abuse, to see systems and legislation executed that hold perpetrators accountable in many forms, and for a society that recognises the diverse population and demographic of victim survivors and recognises them in a way that is anti-victim blaming and trauma-informed. As a survivor and an activist, I am so eager. I am so impatient. I want the future now, and I believe we should all want that. On that note, please keep tuning in, keep listening, keep sharing, showing your support, listening to these stories, and amplifying lived experience voices aids us in reaching that future. And I truly appreciate every single one of you. Ciao, ciao.